happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode 132 for 24 April 2019. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana, and joined, as always, Dr. West Fryer, good evening. How are you tonight, sir? Officially, I am great. <laughs> I've just prioritized my device on my Google Wi-Fi, and my new title, self-proclaimed, is not technology fear therapist. I am a technology whisperer here in Oklahoma City to not emphasize the fear factor. But anyway, my wife's favorite show for a long time on Netflix was it's me or the dog. So basically that's like a tech, that's a dog whisperer, you know? Right. So anyway, yes, we're going to whisper things in your ear that'll convince you that technology is good. It's not all bad. And the surveillance world is not the dystopian nightmare that mainstream media would have you believe. We're basically going to try to hack your brain and brainwash you for the, which game. I'm sure is going to bring additional <laughs> viewers to this episode. Of oh, the podcast. absolutely. Yes. So Wes, what is this whole action about? What is the tech situation room? Well, allegedly, Jason and I have been approached by some of the gods of Silicon Valley to basically distill truth from the headlines that you'll read each week, but provide it for our educational audience. So actually, we just enjoy hanging out together, and it is a good opportunity to read a bunch of articles relating to technology and then think about how they might apply to the classroom, schools, the educational arena, et cetera, et cetera. So you can check out our links at edtechsr.com slash links. We also invite you to, if you happen to be here live, join in our chat that is taking place on YouTube. Ooh, yes, and YouTube has changed its API, yada, 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 fancy schmancy code, and it doesn't auto-tweet out links anymore. So uh, I will do that here in a moment. Um, but you can on edtechsr.com click on the link to our YouTube channel. And on that YouTube channel, you can always, you know, click the link to go live when we do that generally at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. So where are we going to begin tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, I've got a kind of a weird place I want to start. Uh, this is actually news we carried over from the last one we didn't get to, but the stories are so interesting, I thought we'd start with it this week. I have some breaking USB news that I'd like to share with the masses, and there's two really interesting stories. One of them is a cautionary. Actually, they're both cautionary tales, but uh, we'll start off with uh, there was news a couple weeks ago that um, at Mar-a-Lago, which is President Trump's retreat in Florida, that the Secret Service caught a woman from China who was carrying around a laptop and several USB devices, which it's, it turns out had malware on them. And when the FBI plugged them into a laptop, it, you know, apparently attempted to attack the laptop. And um, this story has an interesting tech twist because it's a reminder to everyone you should never plug in a rogue USB stick. And um, USB sticks uh, were a really important pieces of technology from about 2003 to, I'd say, I don't know, 2008, 2009, when the cloud, I think, really rendered the necessity of USB sticks pretty worthless. Uh, it's easier now just to transfer things via the, the internets than it is to try to transfer uh, items onto a USB stick. USB sticks are really terrible devices if you think about them for a couple reasons. The first one is that they oftentimes, well, most often don't securely store your documents. You can actually 
download pieces of software, particularly on the Windows platform, that will encrypt a USB stick. So if it's not plugged back into that laptop or there's a password given, then the, the laptop will be, or I'm sorry, the USB stick will be effectively worthless to the whoever has the stick. But you should never, like, you know, stumble down the street and see a USB stick in on the sidewalk and plug it into your computer. You should never... Um, I would I would even say it's not a good idea to use USB sticks that are handed out at conferences, for example, from vendors. Um, I trust those, and um, you know, and and I don't think that anyone out there is being rogue. But I would say that that the risk from a USB stick is so significant that I wouldn't use the device at all unless I personally purchased it from a retailer. And um, there's also been uh, a, a lot of research by security researchers about something called social engineering, which is a type of hack that uh, takes advantage of people. It's the same kind of hack where someone sends you an email saying, um, I have a, a closed document. You click on it. It makes you log into your, your Google or your, your Microsoft account. And as it turns out, that was a fake screen and it's trying to social engineer you into doing bad things. And, uh, companies that do security audits for things like banks and high security, uh, atmospheres will oftentimes take USB sticks, infect them with, uh, malware with payloads that are simply trying to identify who would plug this into their computer. And there's been statistics that like 85% of people that have found USB sticks in parking lots shove them into their work computer at a bank or a missile silo or other bad places. Or so, if you happen to be in Iran working at their nuclear facility and, you know, folks might have planted the Stuxnet virus. That, that's how Stuxnet yeah. got, you know, planted and the, um, you know, nuclear program of Iran got set back years and years. So it's, it's, it's real folks. It's real. So just a reminder from uh, the EdTech Situation Room podcast that security is really uh, you know, being really on top of, uh, you know, minding threats and you know, that's one of them. And you should have a policy at your school. If you find USB sticks in the hallways, destroy them, right? They're just not worth it. And I'll pick up the, the second article you put under that headline, which is, Really mind-boggling. This is from The Verge on April 17th. Student used USB killer device to destroy $58,000 worth of college computers. And so the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, um, had a student who has a very uh, challenging name, Vishwanath Akrofa, uh, a former student. He's now facing 10 years in prison and a fine totaling up to a quarter of a million dollars. Basically, you can download a, a malware that will completely fry a computer. So it will overwhelm it electrically, uh, rendering the entire thing, you know, broken and not functional. Now, this guy was not very clever on so many fronts because he also recorded videos of himself doing this and he paid and he posted that to social media. So according to the article that gave the security researchers and police all the evidence they needed to go ahead and charge him. And so that is just crazy. Um, but I didn't actually know before reading that article that you could download said malware. So yes. Uh, well, and I, I have a little bit of a correction here. So this is actually not malware. This is a device you can buy. They're called USB kill devices. Oh, it's not, are, it's not software that you put on. Right, yeah. Okay. And they work in, in a in pretty interesting way. Uh, and by the way, they're available. You can buy them. 
hundreds, dozens of places on, or hundreds, maybe dozens of places online. But these devices are, they're, they're, they're the size of a larger USB stick, maybe actually, uh, like if you ever plugged in a TV stick, like an Amazon Fire TV stick, it's like, looks like a larger USB drive. It's close to that size. They usually carry with them significantly large batteries in them, 1,000 milliwatt hours, 3,000 milliwatt hours, 5,000 milliwatt hours. Wow. And the idea is is that you plug it into the computer. The computer charges the device, right? And then when it packs enough of a punch, it delivers that uh, uh, voltage back into the computer, and it fries it in essence, right? I've always thought to myself, and I've – I've known about these since they were invented, 2011, 12 maybe, and I never heard anything about it until I saw this article. And I used to think to myself, particularly on methods of public transportation that have chargers, right? So like your airplane seat, if you ride a commuter train, like everywhere there's charging devices that are suddenly appearing. I'm honestly surprised that these devices haven't become more of a scourge um, in public transportation. So, but they're, they're really terrible devices, but they're, they're, they cost next to nothing. I'm on usbkill.com and you can buy the pro kit, um, for, for this one's from, from the UK ships worldwide. Um, it's 80, uh, it's 80 pounds. That's what about 95, $98. I will, uh, toss out here a, a little comment about that because, um, <laughs> you know, there is a vast cloud of information about each one of us that has been collected and continues to be collected about our profiles. And while this particular search may or may not qualify as something that, you know, gets the Secret Service or, or security agents uh, to knock on your door, I think part of digital citizenship today and, and education of, of students as well as others you know, is the, is the realization that we could indeed be held liable and certainly be questioned for not only things that we, you know, order online and, and would show, would, 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 you know, have show up at our house, like something like this, but, you know, potentially searches. Uh, we've got, I think we've got an article we had last week. I think we did about the, the GPS searches and, Oh, there's actually the article this, this week is about facial recognition. But anyway, um, this is an interesting question. You know, do you, do you want to teach kids at some point about anonymous browsing and about Tor? Um, I, I actually, when I visited our son, not that I'm thinking he's going to go out and, and do a lot of research that's going to be potentially of interest to Homeland Security, but, you know, let's say you're wanting to do research about, uh, Islamic extremist groups, right? It's probably not a great idea to do that kind of research and get yourself flagged as somebody who's heavily interested in in extremist terrorist you know groups anyway as part of your your social footprint or or, uh, there's other ways of of saying that. So anyway, man, that is that is really crazy. I had never heard of that either. Um, The other thing it reminds me of. A number of years ago, probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I gave a, a keynote presentation uh, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma in Lawton, and I was the only non-military person there. And in addition to feeling, you know, quite out of shape among all these buff army folks, you know, the three-star general was sitting in the middle of this essentially like war room, you know, surrounded in a horseshoe with all of his folks. I mean, I had trouble with my presentation because all USB devices were banned. 
Um, there was, you know, you could not load a USB device in any kind of computer and I couldn't just come, you know, jack my machine in and, and whatever. So, uh, pretty interesting the way that USB devices, and I think at that time, and that was even, I think, pre-Snowden maybe, um, you know, there was some, um, researcher at like Los Alamos or something like that who was a foreign national, uh, or, or he was, he was of Asian descent. I'll say that. Um, but he was anyway, um, found guilty of taking a lot of secrets out of one of our national labs, you know, using a USB device, you know? So anyway, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, are you guys, uh, taking any precautions with USB devices there at the university of Montana, Jason, or, or not, not that I know of. Um, we, and we have a lot of computers that, you know, there, there's probably, a, 15 public terminals in my building alone, places where students can log into the university network. I think the good news about that is for at least a higher education devices that labs are really becoming a lot less of a factor as, as kids carry around laptops now, right? And so, um, in fact, the last time I taught a class at the University of Montana, which was last spring, um, day one, we relocated from the computer lab. We wanted a more flexible space because uh, 95% of, of, of our students could bring with them a device to class, but you know it's it you know the the thing about it, and uh, you know obviously we don't know this kid and don't understand his situation or story, but you know uh, being a seventeen year old idiot, right? Like doing something that you don't understand the ultimate consequences for. That's age-appropriate behavior, right? Like, that's what happens when you don't have a lot of frontal lobe development and you're unable to uh, you know, see things. And that's why we have to continue to be diligent about security, right? We have to keep an eye on things. We need to know the threats available to us. And if, you know, if two of your computers end up literally blown out, right, that they uh, essentially fry, you know, I, I'm not saying the kids did it, but be be cautious about that, right? Know the know who's in your labs, knows know what the work is going on there. You know, make sure adult the presence is around because you know kids don't understand consequences sometimes. Well, the other layer to that too is just be really aware of what happens when somebody jacks into your network, right? And there's probably a lot of school networks that have not made this kind of adjustment to make sure that every openly available Ethernet port. It, you know, either doesn't have access or only has access to a sandboxed, you know, protected segment of your network where folks can't ping other things and, and have access to other uh, computers that are on your LAN, your servers, your access control, you know, cameras, all kinds of things. Um, hopefully those things are segmented. And, and in a university environment, I'm sure that is true. But in K-12 schools, uh, you know, I think it probably just varies the degree to which things have been segmented and protected. So there you go. Your USB news for April 24th, 2019. <laughs> I think we have a new podcast in the make. So, okay, Wes, where would you like to go next, sir? Oh, let's do some fun ones. So uh, Boston Dynamics is the amazing uh, robotics company that I think Google owned and then spun off. And I think they're still funding them. Anyway, this is a TechCrunch article from April 19th, 2019. Uh, Boston Dynamics showcases new uses for Spot Mini ahead of commercial production. And so um, if you haven't watched some of these videos, um, the Spot Mini is a, a looks like a dog, basically. And um, the dog can't has has this, you know, arm, essentially, which is like a mouth, which can open uh, doors 
and has phenomenal, you know, potential in terms of like going into a, a Fukushima nuclear accident or, you know, some, some kind of situation where, uh, you know, doors need to be open, things need to be moved around. This wouldn't be a, a rescue robot. Um, it's also just wild to think about these things like as, you know, like security drones, right? So it's one of these, the videos there are, are both creepy and they're pretty exciting, um, which might personify a lot of our feelings about the future in general, right? In terms of, of, of where we're headed and, and the kinds of capabilities. So the Spot Mini is going to be a commercially available robot, one of the first ones from Boston Dynamics. Um, I guess it's going to be really expensive, but they also have um, a pretty incredible um, robot that can be used to load um, you know, uh, boxes. And so it's called the, the handle robot. And so it uses, you know, counterbalancing weights and just really sophisticated algorithms. And so the video, um, you know, for like an Amazon distribution center or any other kind of distribution center where boxes are being loaded on pallets and they're being sorted and things like that. So yet more evidence for the, um, uh, not obscurity, but the, uh, you know, possible irrelevance of, uh, of human beings in, <laughs> an increasing number of, uh, of job roles. And anyway, it's just the march of automation goes on. So Jason, will you be ordering a robot for home security as soon as one becomes, you know, reasonably <laughs> available on Amazon prime? Well, I was just looking at, uh, they, that TechCrunch article has great visuals. So we certainly recommend that you grab the link from edtechsr.com and take a look at the videos and, and, and the images. There's an animated GIF on there with one of these spots that two of them are waiting and they, they look really like dogs. They're waiting outside a door and one uses its mouth to open the door and then both of them like rush into the door. And I'm like, that's the creepiest thing I've ever seen. It looks like a, you know, future movie of robot dogs that are attacking a house. But I'm actually in the market for a live dog right now. I don't think the spot will be making an appearance on our finalist list amongst the other shelter dogs we're looking at. So, um, I, the thing that's really intense about this is that it's really come along quickly. In fact, I've seen at least a half dozen memes in the last six months about Boston Dynamics eight years ago versus Boston Dy Dynamics now. And, you know, they were, I mean, they were creepy looking and they were also very loud it, when they were uh, initially debuted uh, before Google bought Boston Dynamics. Now they seem pretty svelte. The movement's fluid. The batteries are smaller. The noise has been decreased dramatically because of advance, advances in battery technology. Um, this technology is coming to probably a platform somewhere near you. And, you know, it's probably some time before it replaces whole industries, right, or whole jobs like packing trucks, right? Like that's a human-dominated uh, uh, field right now. But... Make no mistake, it's coming. Absolutely. All right. What next? We got a we got a heck of a lot of great articles tonight. Actually, I will just say. Yeah, uh, this one uh, at risk of getting hate mail, and I don't think we've received any hate mail from EdTechSR uh, 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 viewers, but just love. Um, we just received yeah, love. Just love. So <laughs> it's a great article from the New York Times on April thirteenth, two thousand nineteen, about cursive um, making a comeback in schools and. I have been in no uh, more 
aggressively angry discussions than when I've had a pro handwriting and a pro keyboarding person in the same room and brought up the topic of whether or not handwriting should be taught in schools. And I, uh, and I'll be honest, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I actually see there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of um, good arguments on both sides of this issue. But the point of the New York Times article is, and then it starts to go into some of the fight about this, is that, you know, the uh, Common Core obviously was associated with a, a lot of the movement away from handwriting, largely because the, there were large computer purchases uh, to help facilitate testing, which did bring a lot of one-to-one -one computing to schools. And also, you know, it, it doesn't... Um, uh, it, it doesn't take much to imagine that handwriting falls very low on the spectrum of things in a competitive world. Uh, and what I'm talking about is time, right? Like the, there's only so much time in a teacher's day, especially in the K-8 classrooms. I'll also tell you that uh, it, it's not something I talk about often here. I'm a very passionate social studies educator. Uh, it's something that was my classroom environment was teaching social studies. I am still horrified at the impact that it has been uh, uh, kind of wrought upon our culture because students aren't getting social studies uh, uh, education nearly as much as they should be since we just don't test it, right? Some states do, but but it's just not uh, a priority for schools. And it gets cut pretty quickly. And because math and science have become the dominant topics, uh, also teachers are leading pre-service teacher programs with much more math and science background than they are social studies or, for that matter, um, uh, uh, English language arts background. So I uh, am interested in this topic. I, I think it's something we need to have conversations about. There is significant research that suggests that handwriting has more purposes than simply uh, the script part itself. There may be some uh, motor skill elements to this. There could be some memory skills to this. There is incredibly uh, uh, interesting research about how note-taking, the process of note-taking by hand is actually better for learning content than typing notes out, which I think is something I've mentioned, mentioned in the past. The University of Michigan had some research related to that, um, and there's good reasons for it, but um, no, but that's by traditional measures too, right? Like we're taking a multiple choice test. Yeah, saying, yeah, traditional you know, memory who, process. Who, does, who yeah. does better with that, you know, so. Right. So, Wes, I guess I'll start with you. Um, I have delightfully, you know, skirted the middle here. Do you have a thought here about whether or not handwriting belongs in elementary schools? Well, I'll defer a little bit to my wife's opinion, who is a current third grade teacher. And, you know, she sees some value as far as motor skill development. That article talks a little bit about that as well um, with students that, you know, need to develop fine motor skills. But it is certainly not something we need to be, you know, ranting about and banging our shoe on the table about uh, keyboarding. And we also don't, also don't need to get incredibly bent out of shape over keyboarding. I mean, Yes, students are going to need to be able to, in, you know, input into their devices. And yes, keyboarding, I think, is an important skill. But goodness gracious, things, again, are going so fast. The velocity of change that we are experiencing, um, I find myself dictating, you know, a lot, you know, tons more now than I was even just a year ago. So I will not be on the bandwagon of those supporting, you know, handwriting, but I'm also not going to be one you know, saying it, it has no place. I would basically say just, you know, in moderation, uh, look at how Steve Jobs benefited from 
um, calligraphy, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the modern fonts and typography and things like that, and that those are important things for design. So it's not going to harm children if we have a smattering of it, but I don't think it's something we need to be spending a ton of time on, especially given how many other important, you know, skills and topics there are to be addressing in elementary school. Okay, great. Thanks, Wes. So where should we go next? Oh, gosh, this is an amazing video. So if, if anybody, if you're going to take anything away from me in this show, uh, this is it. Uh, Carol Codwaller, uh, if I don't know if I'm saying her name right, Cadwallader. Haven't heard anybody say that out loud. So anyway, she is the person that brought Cambridge Analytica to light for the Guardian. She got uh, Christopher Wiley finally, you know, to come forward, and he's the guy famously with his, his hair dyed pink, you know, that was the one who um, was the whistleblower on Cambridge Analytica. So she just gave a TED Talk in Silicon Valley in April, and the TED Talk is called Facebook's Role in Brexit and the Threat to Democracy. So it's about 15 minutes long, and wow, this so kudos to to Ted and to to the organizer of Ted for having the courage to bring her on stage. She was the lead presenter in the audience, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook in the observation room nearby, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, co-founders of Google. Uh she accused them directly by name of breaking democracy in the world. She said that the Cambridge Analytica hack and what happened with Brexit was the biggest electoral fraud and crime that has happened in the history of Britain in over a hundred years. In Britain, they literally used to have folks with, with luggage uh, sized bags of cash, you know, handing things out for people to vote for different politicians. And they realized, Hmm, not a great idea. We need to have laws that, that, you know, have limits on what people can spend on elections and try to curb the influence that money can have in our elections. Now, obviously there it's no perfect world and we're not perfect either here in the United States, but the fact is Facebook has not been held to account for this. Um, I did put an article in here that just was breaking today. Facebook accepts FTC fines. So that's from, from our side of the pond. The Federal Trade Commission of the United States could be as much as $5 billion, But, you know, given how much money they're making, it's, it's really not that much. Uh, Zuckerberg refuses to go to Europe. He's refused to testify, right? And so she's got pictures in her TED Talk, you know, showing the the name tag or the nameplate, you know, where Zuckerberg is supposed to be, um, they are so frustrated because they are not being able to hold Facebook to account. So I would say this is the most important TED Talk politically that I've ever seen. Um, I think it's a fantastic one to share with students. I think we need we we have had an awakening. That's why we've got this whole tech correction term that Jason, you know, has coined. Um, it's for this phenomenon, whatever you want to call it. It's a backlash. It's a push to regulation. It's a response to the cavalier, you know, run fast and break things or whatever that slogan is, you know, that Facebook and some other Silicon Valley companies have had. Um, it's had, you know, and he's continuing to have dramatically horrific effects on something as important as liberal democracy. So, Jason, what do you think? Are we going to see folks wake up, or is everyone just going to continue to enjoy their Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat feeds and, you know, yawn as we hear about, you know, more news like this? 
Um, it's a good question. I mean, I I had not seen that video yet, and I just queued it up. I have a, a, a small car trip tomorrow, um, heading off for the weekend, and I think that's a wonderful opportunity to listen to stuff like that for me. But, um, you know, I'm glad she spoke truth to power, and I just was kind of looking through the transcript quickly and, and, you know, acknowledge I'm here to talk to the tech gods so that you can do something about this. But it's 2020 coming, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's going to be a contentious election, uh, and, and it, with rancor that I think is going to match, maybe even exceed the 2016 election, so we need to be prepared for that. But I think we all owe it to each other to be very uh, diligent about vetting sources, not spreading fake news, and let's not get pulled into an electoral meme war, right? Like, that's not a productive use of our democratic time. And also, I think we need to have technology companies be accountable to governments that are impacted by their networks, right? And I, you know, I, I, I think, Wes, you and I talked about this probably a half dozen times, at least since 2016. Uh, regulation is really scary, right? Because I think it's an it's, it's a unrated, unregulated Internet that brought us to this point, right? The Internet was allowed to grow on its own without much nudging from world governments to do that. Well, uh, we come to the point where maybe there needs to be something additional, there, right? And I don't know what it is, and it, it certainly isn't something developed by, you know, uh, Stogio Congress people that don't uh, that don't use the internet, to be frank. But it's time, so it's regulate yourselves and include us, the people, or be regulated outside your own terms. And there's important roles outside of regulation here that Carol brings up, right? Shareholders need to demand that Facebook. Um, be accountable internally, right? Like Facebook has this, this data and that's part of what, you know, Europe and, and Britain and other places have, have wanted to get is, you know, show us, show us the data because they have the numbers of how much was spent on these ads and what was spent. And that's one of the things that's so frustrating when people are putting a billboard in your hometown or they're running an advertisement in the newspaper that's out there for the world to see. But the way that Facebook works with these targeted advertisements is unless there's disclosure, you have no idea. It's ephemeral, right? These targeted ads were shown to different people and then they disappeared and there was basically no public record or no evidence of them at all. So, yeah, I think it is a pretty important topic for us to discuss. And hopefully, as we've said before, we will not you know, end up with a broken internet. We already, you know, have a fractured one in many cases in terms of the kinds of filtering that different authoritarian, you know, governments have. But, you know, this isn't just Brexit, by the way. This is also genocide in Myanmar. Um, this is, you know, things happening in Indonesia. This is the rise of authoritarianism and the ways in which these tools um, have been and are being co-opted by um, different, you know, dark forces, Feel right. like we're talking conspiracy here and need the tinfoil hat, but uh, you know, go go watch Destin on Smarter Every Day. He's done uh, two of his four parts of his series on um, the first one was YouTube and the second one was Twitter. You know, on how these campaigns are being hijacked and weaponized um, for money and people wanting to earn cash if they can get content to go viral and be viewed a lot, but also ideologically um, to make us do this to make, to make us angry and, and to, to make our society fractured. 
uh, or even more fractured than it was before. I've seen some references to the tragedy on Sunday in Sri Lanka uh, related to the aftermath of stoking the fears of, of people uh, in that country. And, and obviously, terrible tragedy, uh, a terrible situation that's there. Uh, obviously, in the aftermath, people are pointing fingers like crazy. The government may have known, they may not have known. The United States ambassador to Sri Lanka has... Uh, 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 been a lot on radio and it's been very cautious. I think she's been actually uh, uh, not stoking fears, but you know, you uh, I've seen references to the fact that social media has been a buzz in that country trying to make sense of that, right? Taking advantage of people's fears, taking advantage of the tragedy to try to stoke, uh, you know, negative forces that, that are only going to slow the healing of, of, of that terrible tragedy. And, you know, depending on when people are listening to this, as many different, you know, shootings and things like that that are happening. I mean, Easter Sunday, this past Sunday, uh, hundreds were killed by a series of bombs that were planted around Sri Lanka. Um, and I did put an article in this week's show notes. This is from the Washington Post on April 22nd. The headline is Sri Lankan government blocks social media and imposes curfew following deadly blasts. And, uh, Twitter was not blocked, but uh, Facebook was, and I think, uh, WhatsApp was, and, you know, they were pointing out that while this may curb the spread of disinformation and rampant, you know, um, theories that, that, that were not based in truth, um, it also hurts journalists and the ability to try to get out counter information. And, uh, wow, it's just, uh, Thinking about shutting that off, what wasn't there, there was a country in Africa? We had this, this, then this is funny, the, the Sri Lankan stuff, nothing's funny about it. But in, in Africa for testing, they had basically a switch where they could turn the internet off. And so I don't know if you remember that where they actually, I'll, I'll find that one, and see if I can put it in the show notes for this week. But they were actually trying to curb cheating on tests and they had the internet kill switch and they did that for the country. I mean, that, it seems like. Is that even fake news? I, I think that was legitimate. But it is really, really troubling to think about an entire nation, you know, shutting down access to major social media platforms. And the reason is they feel helpless to be able to stop disinformation. So I, I just the level of crisis here that really, really smart folks are are grappling with and, and not coming up with algorithmic solutions to these issues uh, it's back to the, to the, the, um, Ted talk that we were just talking about. I mean, there's, there's really fundamental challenges to, uh, freedom of expression, uh, democratic governance, um, and even just the, the idea of being able to, to get, you know, authoritative information out and, you know, prevent rampant, um, um, not myths. What am I trying to say? When, when a story that's not true, um, not urban legends, but, you know, disinformation that's just running, running rampant. Um, and some of those things, and, th- and these have been documented in India and Pakistan and things like that too, right? Um, rumors, you know, that this group was coming and, and, and false accusations and things like that. And it's led to violence and, you know, it's, it's, it's led to terrible things. So hopefully we are going to uh, have some accountability for some of this, but we're also going to be able to, to have tools to deal with it. Uh, because this is the new normal, right? This is not an outlier situation. Um, as, as Destin, the smarter everyday YouTuber talks about when he interviews folks at, at, at Google and, and, and I think this other social media analyst, it's always an election somewhere, right? So.
It's crazy. Well, Wes, I think we need to get some, like, good old-fashioned nerdery done, too, this week. So let's uh, – I've got a couple of interesting Chrome OS updates. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Google I.O., which is Google's developer conference. Wes and I have clandestinely talked about maybe uh, appearing there as a podcasting juggernaut and seeing if we can – Get some, I guess probably try to get some journalists passed to, to go there and uh, go cover the event. But um, the reason why I mentioned it, and this is a great article from our good friends at uh, uh, Chrome Unboxed, that the Google I.O. schedule is totally dominated by Chrome OS sessions. And uh, the fact that there is even more in that space and that I think they've really made a lot of inroads in the last two or three years and making these not just devices for low-end devices for schools, but these are legitimate alternatives to the traditional laptop. The laptop, I think, is really an amazing thing. And so I think you're going to find a lot of interesting things to come there. And also, uh, uh, kind of a juxtaposition that with uh, an announcement from Android Authority on April 19th that HP has what seems to be a really interesting Chromebook coming out. Um, I, of course, am now pretty much 100% on Chromebooks. Uh, I have a uh, an iMac at work I can use. I have a Windows a laptop at work I can use. I have a an alternative Windows box at home, but otherwise I'm carrying around a, a Chromebook with me now. I'm on a Chromebook right now, plugged in to a big docking station, and at work I'm using a little mini Chromebox as my primary device right now. This is not just a fun device or testing device. It's my primary device. I'm very interested in this, but HP has announced uh, what looks like a very interesting uh, form factor. It's a 15-inch workstation-style Chromebook that has a full keyboard, including a number pad. And uh, obviously, it has the lower-powered chips if you prefer. So I think it's a Pentium Gold chip is in there. But you could also get something um, as... Um, uh, uh, or no, actually, this is the wrong Chromebook for that. I read that somewhere else. So it's it's really intended just to be a big screen and a keyboard, and it has the spinning gold chips are actually pretty solid, but unfortunately, it only has uh, four gigs of RAM. That's a downfall to that in my mind. But again, interesting form factor, and I think I would be probably not really in the market because I already own a number of Chromebooks and Chrome devices. But this is an interesting Chrome device to me. I think. Uh, Thinner, lighter, 15-inch form factor with a nice 15-inch HD screen would be very tempting to me. So, Wes, are you in the market for a high-end Chromebook? I mean, it actually is kind of tempting. What I've what I've found, and I have I have been trying here for the last week or so, uh, a very high-end MacBook. So, a MacBook with the Touch Bar and the you know um, you know fingerprint ID and and all that. But man, you know what? I I love thin. I love thin. And so um, this original older MacBook that I have, it's the USB-C only. And it, it's basically thinner than an iPad. Uh, that That's what I love. Um, so I think that's probably what I'm going to stick with at this point, but continue to follow those Chrome developments with interest. To mention a few other Google-related uh, positive, non-sort of... Uh, dystopian articles. Uh, I think you dropped this in about Google Sheets, adding some really awesome spreadsheet formatting. One of the things I, this is from nine to five Google on April 19th. Um, one of the things I, you know, used to acknowledge with folks is, okay, you know, if you want to do pivot tables, you're just a, a super Excel nerd. Well, you know, you're going to want to 
stick with Excel. Well, I mean, you can do pivot tables now in Google Sheets along with a bunch of other things. And then on sort of musical media uh, notes, this is a little less, you know, maybe schooly than personal. The YouTube blog reported on April 18th that you can now enjoy YouTube music free on Google Home speakers. Now that's really more um, Pandora style. So you can't say play this song, but you can say, you know, play me this genre or this mood and, and it'll go ahead and play, which I kind of thought that's what you could already do on the free tier. But I guess maybe they've gotten a little better with identifying, you know, genres and things like that. And then um, these two other two articles are under the Amazon heading because they involve both Amazon and Google. Uh, but Rolling Stone has a nice article from April 22nd. Amazon and Google are making music free, and that could be a big headache for Spotify. Uh, I have, I think, as I've mentioned in the last, you know, month and a half, become an absolute devotee of Spotify. It is great. And one of the things that's so cool about it is actually training a new platform, right? Because as you say, heart this, I don't like this, you are algorithmically programming their uh, system to know what you like and what you don't like. And so um, anyway, Spotify has this thing called Discovery Weekly. You get a new playlist of, you know, 20 some odd songs or whatever every Monday. Um, and I've discovered some really, really fun, you know, songs. A lot of those are like 70s and 80s, 80s songs, but that's been good. And then the very last article in this series um, was from the Daily Mail. I think you put this one in. Amazon and Google finally in their years-long feud as firms reveal YouTube will be available on the Fire Stick for the first time since 2017. And so just really interesting, you know, machinations here. We saw uh, Netflix, I think, last week or the week before, you know, kind of in a flipping their nose at Apple saying, okay, fine, Apple, uh, you're not going to let us, you know, be a, or we're not going to be a part of, of your whole Apple TV thing and whatever. So you're going to compete with us. We're not going to let people airplay anymore. Um, when they have Netflix, um, they're going to have to, uh, you know, they can still use the app, but anyway, there, there was, there's some airplay uh, functionality that was broken here, but we've got cooperation between Amazon and Google. So I guess the educational, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll ask you that question, Jason. What, what should, uh, teachers and students think about all these machinations between, you know, Amazon, Google, Apple, music, media? Does, does it have implications for our lives other than current events about where the tech companies are and stocks to invest in? Or is there another educational angle as far as being aware of, of all these things? The biggest thing that was interesting to me about the YouTube and Amazon article is that I think that makes a Fire TV stick a more legitimate classroom device than it was before. To be clear, YouTube was available on a Fire TV stick, but they had a kind of not great app that was essentially a wrapper around the web-based interface. And so it read as a tablet, so it was the YouTube tablet interface. And the tablet interface is fine if you're on a tablet, right? But the fact that you couldn't touch the screen and it was looking for a touch screen as part of that wrapper, it just was a really awkward way of doing that. And so if you're if you're not plugging in you know, a laptop directly into a projector screen, for example, in a classroom, I do think a Fire TV stick is an interesting alternative. I don't know how you manage them. Um, that's the key piece, right? So if you're in a, in, in a bigger implementation, you're trying to lock things down appropriately, that gets a little weird. But for, you know, 30 bucks, it's a, it's a really interesting platform. I'm honestly surprised that Amazon hasn't spent more time and effort trying to create interfaces that could allow you to roll out 
um, let's say, fire TV sticks to a whole district, right? Like, it seems like it would be in their interest to do that since they have their hooks in so many other audiences. But that was the, the, the main piece there, is it would be a dirt-cheap way to get a pretty great YouTube uh, inter, uh, YouTube interface um, uh, in, in your classroom. So uh, consider that. Uh, but Amazon, you're wasting time here. Let's, let's create an interface that can manage these bad boys. As a tech director, I'll say that is hugely important. And so we have steered clear of Chromecast as well as, you know, Fire Sticks because we need to be able to manage those things and make sure bandwidth wise and all that. So we've gone Apple TV. It's actually a reason, uh, at my, at my school that I really, you know, need to stay with an Apple device as well because we have so many Apple TVs and the opportunity to just throw my content up on the screen wirelessly is phenomenal. And that's still something that is coming along, but it's not there yet uh, as far as I've seen with, with other platforms. You want to talk a little podcasting? You got a few articles there about uh, some podcast stuff. Yeah. So Wes, I'm not going to, I'm, uh, I'm also pointing out one of the things you're going to point out in the geek of the week. So I will, uh, allow you to express our glee at, at the news of note to self returning. Oh, no, but, do it, do it, do it. Well, uh, so note to self, the podcast from WNYC that both Wes and I are pretty, uh, uh pretty enamored with. I'm, I have a, a podcast crush, Manusha Marodi, who I think is a wonderful, uh, radio, uh, producer and, and show host. And I think now important voice in the cultural zeitgeist of, of kind of technology and distraction. Um, and the, as a reminder, the, the note to self team, which is Manoush and Jen Poyant, who is, I believe, her executive producer on, uh, the podcast at WNYC left. WNYC a year ago to start their own company and it's called Stable Genius Productions or Stable G Productions and they have produced the Zigzag podcast. Now that's a different venture and um, that is something that it's kind of kind of a roller coaster of, of a ride because they were super into blockchain and then they joined the Civil Team, which is a blockchain based journalism platform that didn't get funded initially and then they've been working on digital ways to get funding. Now they're going in other directions. But uh, Manoush has appeared on IRL, which is the Mozilla podcast, and produced a great season. I'm assuming she was part of the production of, of that podcast for the season, and now they're back. So that's celebratory, and you can go to WNYC's Note to Self page and download that podcast. But there's a, there's a deeper story here, and I think it has something to do, in my mind, with the broader free culture that seems to dominate most of the Internet still. Um, that note to self is not a WNYC production anymore. It is a WNYC and stable G and, um, a new, uh, uh, a podcast app called Luminary is, uh, the platform that they're hosting that on. Now I'll admit I'm a little confused. Uh, let me describe Luminary. Luminary is a paid for pod- podcast platform that hosts some big wigs in the podcasting world. They've pulled in dozens of you know, headline creators to create premium. They're calling them premium podcasts on that platform. But the problem with that is, of course, is that the premium podcasts um, cost money, right? You have to pay $7.99 a month to hear Manoush Samarodi's Note to Self, or I think Trevor Noah is amongst that list. I did get a off-the-press uh, a newsletter from Hot Pot uh, this morning that Joe Rogan, who is the kind of uh, 
uh, I, I describe him as kind of a libertarian uh, a podcaster. He's, he's an entertainer, but also hosts a pretty pushy, um, uh, pretty pushy um, uh, uh, political views in the world. But it's it's a very popular podcast, uh, top podcast, 2017, 2018 on iTunes list. He's pulled out of the platform. But the reason why I think it's an interesting topic of discussion is that I, I, I subscribe to, to Luminary. I pay, I, it's a month free and then I, it will charge me as of next month because I thought that you needed that to listen to Note to Self. And to be honest, I pay eight bucks a month for that podcast. Uh, I was actually donating to WNYC when that podcast was still active to help support that podcast. But uh, I question that for you, Wes, is that can we convert podcasting at least Big name podcasting, can that become a Netflix, right? Can it become a, a, a library of shows so persuasive, so part of your media diet that's worth six bucks, eight bucks, ten bucks, twelve bucks a month? I don't know. I mean, I really think part of the puzzle here is discovery and algorithms and, and machine learning and lots of big data is going to help with that. And I do think that smart assistants play a role here, being able to, you know, talk to your, your device and, and listen. But I don't know about the monetization part. It's a, it's a really good puzzle. But, you know, it's a cultural norm that would need to change, right? Because we're really used to free content and, and not paying for that. So that's that Patreon culture as far as folks being willing to kind of, you know, chip, chip some money into the kitty and, uh, and support creators. Um, I want to, think that that is going to be possible on a large scale. I know that Patreon, yeah, you know, is, is, is empowering, you know, creators, yeah. um, to be able to make, make a go of that. Um, and YouTube is as well, but you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging road. There's a lot of uh, friction right now between YouTube creators and there has been in the, in the platform. So hopefully yeah. so, but I, I think my biggest fear with all this is like with the Spotify acquisition of both of Gimlet and, um, anchor, you know, the fear that it wouldn't be sort of open web podcasting, that it's going to be walled garden podcasting. Right. And that is not podcasting in the same way that writing articles behind your, your walled garden of your website or your, your uh, you know, newspaper, or whatever is, is not blogging, you know, cause that involves open standards and open publishing. Excellent. I will also note, I am a $20 a month Patreon uh, giver. I have it. I divide amongst six or seven different creators, but um, I believe in funding things that I enjoy and that I consume. And I do think that if more people did give via things like Patreon, I do think it would help the industry mature a bit without going behind walled gardens, as Wes refers to. But, uh, yeah, I'm curious to find out where this goes. And the other piece of it that's really concerning to me, actually, it was very confusing to me. My understanding is you had to join Luminosity or, or Luminary to, I keep calling it Luminosity. Luminary, Luminosity is the memory app <laughs> on, on mobile phones. But uh, Luminary is uh, the podcasting app. You had to go on there. And, in fact, I started a one-month free trial to listen to the Note to Self podcast, which, we, which by the way, is excellent. Um, and... Um, I went on to WMYC's page today and they posted a copy of the podcast. So I, I can't wrap my brain around Luminary yet. And by the way, it's supposed to be also like a generic podcasting app, right? You're supposed to have all your podcasts in one place, but Gimlet and Spotify have pulled all their podcasts from the app. They've requested that they don't put them on there. I want to say the New York Times pulled their daily podcast off of there. 
Um, and other popular podcast platforms have also said, please don't put us on your, 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 uh, Luminary app. So I know we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Uh, let's pick up a couple of Microsoft articles. Uh, I dropped this one in from Ars Technica on April 19th. McAfee joins Sophos, Avira, Avast, the latest Windows update breaks them all. So we've talked about this, um, both from articles and also personal, you know, we've been using Kaspersky for the past three years at school. Thankfully our, our uh, license is expiring, but on the windows platform, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, there's been a lot of conflicts that we've had with it and just a lot of issues. Uh, windows defender is now my advice to folks. I just had a, one of our upper division science teachers ask me for a new, you know, windows Dell that, uh, I think her son bought, you know, what do we get for antivirus? I said, windows defender, because basically Microsoft has, has, has restricted the access that third party, um, antivirus anti-malware companies can have to the operating system. And so their product is, probably the the best one. Um, and then there's some other things going on with, with updates. I know you put in uh, the, the Windows 7 article as far as the, you know, twilight time for Windows 7, uh, and then also, you know, updates to uh, WAS. What is WAS? W-A-A-S. What's up with Windows that? as a service is the uh, acronym there, and it's really what Windows is now, right? Like, the idea is, is you don't buy Windows... And then you buy new Windows, right? Like once you buy Windows 10, you get it for the life of the computer, right? And you would get updates um, uh, forever, you know, as long as the device continues to function. Uh, that's been controversial because Windows has kind of borked the last couple of big updates. And in fact, it's not even rolling out this update because they continue to have problems. They've changed it from an April update to a first half of 2019 update to give themselves a little bit of extra time. Um, I, I will say the, the, one of the articles that, the one that refers to WAS talks about how, uh, Microsoft is giving more access to just regular users, not just tech directors that have managed Windows, uh, uh, devices, but rather you as an end user have the opportunity to hold off and even stop an update from coming and will be given way more notice and it won't be so random that you restart and suddenly it needs to, you know, spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour updating. Um, so that, I think that's a really good note. The other article I posted is that Windows is, I'm sorry, Microsoft is starting to send, uh, messages that, that showed up with an update a week or two ago. This is from a Microsoft Power user on April 20th telling Windows 7 users that listen, the end is near. It is January 2020 and Windows 7 will stop being supported. And I actually tweeted this out over the weekend with the message that, and I, I'm speaking to everyone, uh, uh, of our audience on the podcast that ha- maybe has a Windows laptop that, uh, you know, instead of buying a new one, strongly consider uh, seeing what would it be to add an SSD drive, maybe more RAM to your laptop if you don't already have a maxed out RAM and an SSD drive, and try installing Windows 10 yourself, right? Worst case scenario, assuming you've backed up all your data, please back up all your data first before you do this. Worst case scenario, you bork your laptop, you go off to hp.com and buy a new one. But I will say that I've been extremely impressed with Windows 10 that even on older hardware, especially if you make a couple of basic updates to this, and this could be a real opportunity for you to fix your own computer, it's becoming less and less possible with kind of the glued together mess that is part of the, the, the modern day computer, but it might be an opportunity for you to add some stuff to it and 
make it last a year or two longer with a modern Windows 10 install. And if you can't pull that off, a geeky friend can definitely do it. So consider that as an alternative to you know immediately going out and buying a new laptop. Quick additional article before we do Geeks of the Week. Uh, don't normally uh, cite Fox News, but this is a Fox News article from April 23rd. I'll do a shout-out to the wonderful uh, Google News app, which has a nice job of, of, of wide coverage, right, of a variety of different news perspectives. But the article is titled, Teens' $1 billion suit claims Apple's facial recognition software led to a false arrest. And basically, uh, there were a series of thefts that happened in an Apple store uh, and a series of Apple stores. And so someone uh, used a stolen ID um, when they were busted, stealing merchandise. And so that ID had his name, address, and personal information, but didn't have a photo. And so then that thief had also stolen from others. And so Apple uses facial recognition. And basically, once they had identified that face as belonging to this person who was arrested, you know, then he was charged with all these different thefts. And so anyway, the charges have been dropped, um, but perhaps a cautionary tale about facial recognition. However, I am relatively pessimistic about that. I think we are just headed, you know, nonstop with, without any uh, possible chance of turning around into the world of biometrics. If you're flying in commercial airlines today in probably most cities, you are going to be biometrically scanned and your information from your passport is going to be wedded to your facial whatever that's called footprint. I don't know what that is when they, when they, you know, make all those measurements on your face. So Jason has the, has the, the foreboding reality of facial recognition caused you to abandon, you know, all of your desires for future international travel or are you going to still plow ahead? Uh, I will plow ahead. And in fact, I, I took an international trip in November. My wife and I uh, went to uh, fabulous Costa Rica and we re-entered the United States via the Miami International Airport, which I believe is the third largest international um, uh, intake destination in the United States and covers most of Central and South America, I might add. But um, the process of immigration wasn't great, but because... Uh, uh, it scanned our face and it matched our passport and they were able to use those biometric pieces. We probably skipped, um, uh, at least, at least an hour long line because of that. So, uh, you know, it does give up parts of your privacy, but truly identifying someone, especially someone coming in and out of the country or perhaps getting on a commercial airplane. Um, I think there is a legitimate argument for having true identity available for the crowd using those particular services. And I think the biometric piece help speed up that process. All right. Shall we geek of the week and get out of this show? Sure. Let me start. I have a quick one. I have a really wonderful tweet I want to share with everyone. The link is at edtechsr.com. Um, this is from a um, uh, someone on Twitter. Her name is Jennifer Orton, and she posted a really wonderful idea um that uh, uh, if you were in a classroom and you are having kids record things on an iPad or a mobile device, that could be a pretty sketchy prospect if you have 30 kids recording at once because you get the voice and then you get the murmuring of 29 other kiddos. And in fact, I have a little bit of experience with this because the, the, some of the schools I worked in as part of my dissertation work, I had kids that were using iPads and Siri in a middle school setting, middle school science setting, and the embarrassment sometimes of accessing Siri or recording or doing things on there was too much for some kids. And in the other direction, if you've got 29 kids talking to their iPads at once, it creates another 
this uh, uh, problem. Her simple solution was to take collapsible boxes. So these are usually have metal or plastic framing and are collapsible down and are really interesting uh, ideas. Basically, she took those and stuck the iPad inside of them. And you see these cute elementary kids recording stuff and they stick their face inside of the box, basically. And almost all the distracting audio is gone so you can record. Um, and I was also thinking that if you can't find a collapsible box like that, right, that's an awfully specific thing to find. If you just got one of the portable photo um, uh, backgrounds are usually black and they have a box inside them that you could stick like an item in you're trying to sell on eBay or on Craigslist, that would also do that as well. And those probably aren't as cheap as collapsible boxes, but, you know, for, for 6 $7 a pop if you wanted to get them um, uh, 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 you know, in bulk, I, it would be a wonderful way to stick a couple of these in your classroom for doing recording. Um, a shout out to Peggy George, our chat moderator, who noted that it would also be great for Flipgrid recordings, and I couldn't agree more. Um, it, it would be a great way that if you had episodic recording and you want to be distracted by the 29 other chit-chatting kids in a classroom, it's a great way to do that. So super shout out to Jennifer Orton that came up with a wonderfully clever idea and um, happy recording. Awesome. I already retweeted that to our uh, middle and lower division librarian and to my wife. So we'll have to see if we can give that a try as well. Two quick ones. Agenda software for Mac OS and iOS. Uh, this is software. It's agenda.com. Uh, I think uh, Daring Fireball had a review of this. And uh, shout out to Jeremy King, who I work with uh, at school, that is uh, giving this a try. So it's kind of billed as note-taking, but it also has calendar agenda, project management. Um, I guess agenda reminders is coming soon. But the agenda software, anyway, it's you can download it free and use it on your Mac or your iOS device. And uh, the project management piece is what really looks interesting to me. Uh, we really need those tools. I'm kind of wondering if Google is ever going to have some kind of a project management feature that they're going to pull in, um, you know, being able to have specific milestones and uh, assignments for different projects that you um, have dates and, and assigned to different people. Uh, and then the second one real quick is, I don't know if we've done this one before, Chrome Remote Desktop. Have we have we had that as a Geek of the Week, Jason? I don't we have yeah. then it's time to release his passes. Okay. So yeah, and and I've I've played with that. Um uh, man, I don't know if I'm starting to get a little fuzz here. I don't know if my device priority has has run out. Uh let's see if we can prioritize this again. Um or if, if it's your bandwidth, you're getting a little fuzzy for me. We're almost done. Uh, so Chrome Remote Desktop is an extension and also a web portal, and it allows you to remotely control devices. So if it's like something at your house you're going to always want to have access to directly, you can set it up that way. Uh, but we were experimenting this week uh, with that, and it basically just like you do a, a log me in or some other kind of uh, support tool that uh, gives you a code and then you're talking to somebody, you know, on the phone and you give them, give them your code. Um, our firewall vendor really likes to use team viewer for that. I've used a variety of different tools, but anyway, it is completely free. Uh, we were just using it Mac to Mac and we'll have to do some more experimentation, but it should, should work cross platform because it is working, you know, via Chrome. So on the Mac OS, you do have a little program that you download, uh, and then you have to go into your security preferences and be able to allow that, right? Because you're allowing remote control of your device. Um, but it uh, is free, wouldn't be a subscription-based way to, um, you know, to have to go and 
certainly something worth checking out if you are helping anyone with technical support and desktop support. And that is cloud-based. So it's something you could also have your, you know, parent or other, uh, you know, relative potentially install and then be able to walk them through whatever kinds of things they need assistance with. I will give you a quick hint here. Is my audio okay, Wes? Your audio is okay. The video is getting a little blurry, so I don't know. Okay. Maybe it had some bandwidth challenges on your end. I'm not sure. A couple other quick things about this particular tool. First, I have a Windows machine at home and a Windows machine at work that's set up with a simple desktop and three or four pieces of software on it that I have the remote desktop installed on. And the one or two times a month I need Windows software for my Chromebook, I just simply remote desktop into it, access what I need to. I have the Google Stream file viewer uh, installed, so I have access to all my Google doc files, and I'm good to go. Um, and also, I have a separate Google account that is it's secure. It's got a good password on it that I have all my relatives' computers set up locally at home, able to get in and... Uh, you'll get on other computers. And so for my in-laws and my parents and their laptops, uh, that's how I provide family-based tech support as I use Chrome Remote Desktop for that. So wonderful, wonderful, free and robust tool. And uh, Geek of the Week from Peggy, Eric Kurtz, has these wonderful Google user group meetings online with a Google Doc. I'll put a, a link to it. And the next one is coming up on, I think she said, the 30th of April on Tuesday. It's Google user group. Uh, wow. What a cool thing. Collaborative Google doc to toss in links and things you want that you want to share and others can. You can even join the hangout if you want to. So that is loaded with Google resources. Awesome. Okay, Wes, uh, where can people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter and speed of creativity.org on the blogs. How about you, Jason? I am at TechSavvyTeach on Twitter. I blog at the Northwest Council for Computer Education, a Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blognc.org. And if you're interested in not just us, but this podcast, this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we talk tech with education focus. Uh, we are here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 3 o'clock in the morning, UTC or something. Um, we'd love to have you join live. We'd love to have guests in our audience. And our, our chat moderator, Peggy George, would like to make your acquaintance as we uh, chat with folks back and forth. But in case you're not into the live interaction, you can always download our podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can go to our website, edtechsr, and Download teeny tiny little files to download to your laptop or device or stream to your computer. Or you can head to our YouTube channel where we have archived all of our episodes. We'd love to have you join us. We'd love to have you listen to the show. And, of course, we welcome um, and invite your feedback. Uh, until next time, uh, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Adios.